morning, church. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verses, verse 16 and go all the way to the 6th chapter, the 2nd verse. If you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be found on page 966. It's been a great privilege to be with you these past few weeks. It's been quite a ride. Uh, I got engaged a few, like a week ago. Um, I, oh, thank you. I experienced Ghana with Mark and Craig and, uh, Mark, uh, we gave Craig a hard time, a really hard time. So me and Mark, uh, apologize for that, Craig. Um, but they're great men, uh, great elders here. Uh, and I do say that genuinely. So in 2 Corinthians 5, we start in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you that it changes us. And Father, I ask as I minister here that your Holy Spirit would minister to hearts, that you would change us, that you would save some, that you would sanctify your church that you would point out sin, that we would repent, and that we, that we would glory in the glories of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to go to Ghana, as some of you are going in, uh, let's see, August, August 4th, I believe it is, and you were to travel from the city of Insuam to the capital, Accra, you would be struck with the multitude of sights, sound, and perhaps smells. You would experience the difference, perhaps, in air quality as you travel down the, ho- the highway with your taxi driver being jarred about by the countless potholes that litter the road. You would look out as you approach a stop sign to see vendors approaching you, offering you water in these plastic bags. And perhaps you would drive past these 
posters, countless posters advertising something. These posters are presenting men. Men dressed in fancy suits, fancy clothes. But you see, this is not an advertisement for a law office. And it's certainly not an advertisement for the next Cracker Barrel. Instead, this is a spiritual advertisement. An advertisement for you to see this pastor or claimed priest or claimed prophet whose clothes and demeanor depict wealth and authority. The nation of Ghana has a significant issue. Their issue is that of a false gospel, a gospel contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their gospel, rather, is a gospel of wealth and prosperity. Paul in Corinthians, in in Corinth, has experienced similar issues. He wrote four letters that we know of, the first of which has been lost, the second we know as 1 Corinthians. He also wrote a third letter following his journey to Corinth. And this letter is known to scholars as a severe or tearful letter. He's, he's addressing an issue of false apostles in Corinth. And so this severe letter was written for them to repent. And thankfully, these these men who were likely Judaizers teaching the people of Corinth that they must obey the Jewish customs, thankfully these men were shunned in much of Corinth. In fact, these men were so dangerous that Paul called them deceitful workmen or servants of Satan. And so this severe letter, as I mentioned, was welcomed with repentance. However, 2 Corinthians is addressing residual issues among some of the members. Some of the members are are still considering what these people were teaching. And these people were undermining Paul's authority as an apostle of Christ. They, They were saying that they were greater apostles than Paul. And so this necessitated a response from Paul, which some of which is found in 2 Corinthians, in this text. Paul is defending his apostolic ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. He's outlining what comes as a result of this reconciliation that he has received even, this experience of love that he has experienced from Christ. And so that's where we begin in verse 16. Paul begins saying, from now on, therefore. He's referencing back to verse 14, where he's saying that the love of Christ controls him. Because the love of Christ has so captured his heart, he is now saying that he regards no one according to the flesh. Even though he once regarded Christ according to the flesh, he regards him thus no longer. And so first I want to take a look at that second part regarding Christ according to the flesh. You see, Paul is talking about viewing Christ in a fleshly perspective. He's talking about the historical person of Jesus. Sam, just a few minutes ago, mentioned how she was taught Jesus as a person. But you see, Paul not only saw him as a historical person, he saw him as a historical blasphemer. And this position that he took, 
of, of being the son of God deserved death. The death of a criminal. The death of a cursed person. Because God says a hanged man is cursed by God. And so this historical Jesus that was known by Paul was known according to the flesh, known as this blasphemer who deserved what he got. But as we know, Paul did not stay here. He's now saying that he regards Christ according to the Spirit. He regards him thus no longer according to the flesh, but we can say that the converse of that is regarding Christ according to the Spirit. And so Paul here is showing that the reconciliation that he received from God, the love of Christ that he received, brings about an altered mind. A mind that knows Christ to be who he says he is in the scriptures. Not simply a man, but the God-man. Paul is saying that he now regards Christ as the promised Messiah, the Son of God, who reconciles men to God. And so this begs a question. Is, are you regarding Christ according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? Have you seen this Lamb of God to come and take away your sin as the Son of God who was given for you? And so Paul, just prior to this regarding of Christ according to the flesh, he speaks on how he regards others according to the flesh. He says he regards no one according to the flesh. Now this is addressing issues that are no doubt in Corinth as they're in America today. It's the issue of the superficial, of the carnal, like the, like the posters depicting in Ghana, depicting these men of authority. And so we even have that problem here in America. We see a regarding of the flesh, regarding of the superficial, of the carnal. And you can see that simply just walking into Barnes & Noble, going into the Christian bookstore, Christian section in Barnes & Noble, you'll see these books with men who appear authoritative, that are, that are handsome, who, who depict authority. And, and this isn't just addressing personal ministry, but perhaps even church ministry as a whole. You see, there's a problem here in the United States. There's an obsession with church image. And I'm not talking about a desire for the lost to see the righteousness of the church. But I'm rather talking about desire for the lost to be drawn into the church by the things of the world. And you see it in these massive facilities that churches build with amazing sound systems to imitate the concerts of the world. You can see it in the songs that many churches sing. Sometimes you don't even know when you're talking about Jesus or your girlfriend. And you see, there's this desire to appease the flesh, to appeal to the flesh, without ever speaking of sin and our need to be saved from it. See, the lost needs to see their sin for what it truly is. We need to regard our ministry according to the Spirit. Now, this passage isn't just talking about teachers or churches, but it's talking about everyone. Everyone in the community. Anyone that we might regard according to the flesh. It, that includes the lost antagonistic colleague that you see and work next to every day. 
or that strange family that lives down the street, they kind of smell weird. You know, they, they're just strange. Or it's that destitute man on the side of the road. You see, the world dismisses these people. But we, as Christians, as people who have been reconciled to God, rather than regarding them according to the outward appearance, regard them according to the Spirit. We see the potential of God in their life. We reject the emphasis on worldly standards standards, and look at them just as Christ looked at us. To regard others according to the Spirit is to love that antagonistic colleague, that strange family, that destitute man, just as Christ has loved us. It's easy in American Christianity to see ourselves as professional Christians, as, as these wise professionals who have ascended to this level of knowledge of Christ. But that's contrary to how we are so often described in Scripture. We are the weak that bring shame to the strong. We are the foolish who shame the wise. So perhaps you, you sit down at lunch and you consider yourself. You consider the grace that was shown you. That you, this helpless sinner, have been made a recipient of the grace of God. Not because we are wise, but because God is. Then Paul continues in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone. You can imagine Paul writing this, the persecutor of the church prior to his conversion. And this once critic of Christ has now been made new. And this language promotes a sense of humility, of awe and love for the one who has showed Paul and showed us mercy. And he says how this comes about, how this new creation comes about, it's through the Christian's union with Christ. Now, if if someone was to ask you, perhaps you go to lunch and and someone was, was to ask you about your faith, many of us would likely say, well, I am a Christian. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with that label, it's not the one that Paul chooses. In fact, the word Christian is only mentioned three times in all of the New Testament. What Paul rather uses is a phrase, in Christ. He uses this 80 times in his letters, not even including the times he uses the phrase in the Lord or some other variation. And so this is significant to Paul. Why is Paul so focused on this phrase in Christ? It's because it's so important. We have to understand this union that we have with Christ. Union with Christ means that we have been united in his death and in his resurrection. Look up at verse 14. Verse 14 says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. Now that we are in Christ, this old man, who we were in Adam, the one who lives under sin and under death, has died and a new man lives. We now exist in Christ, or as a new man, or a new creation, as in verse 17. We live in a new age of righteousness and life because we are in Christ. 
And though this old man who we once were is powerless to sin, a slave to it, this new creation has power over sin. The ability to say no. He is free. Now this does not mean that this new creation has attained a perfection. Because Paul here is announcing an eschatological tension between this inauguration that he brought about and and the glorification that he will one day receive along with us. And so you see, all of these elements of Christ are founded in our union with him. We have died to sin because we died to Christ. And we live as a new creation because Christ lives. And one day we will be glorified when Christ is glorified. And so this is some deep stuff. But thankfully, God has provided us a picture and we celebrated it today. He has given us baptism. He's given us baptism as a picture of this old man and new man. In fact, in the Christian church, in the early church, on Easter Sunday, they, would, they developed this liturgy where these men who were seeking to be baptized would come to baptism wearing this outer garment. Then they would take off the outer garment to be baptized. And then after being baptized, they would give them a new garment. This is symbolizing putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ. In verse 17, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We heard testimony today that old opinions, old views, plans, desires, principles, and affections have been passed away. And we are now given a new view of truth, new principles, new apprehensions of the destiny of man, and new feelings and purposes fill and now govern the soul, Charles Hodge said. And, and baptism is a testimony of this new coming, this new creation. And you see, this brings us back to the point that we were making earlier, that we are to know others according to the Spirit. And for believers... One to another, we see an even greater unity as new creations. There is no longer room for superiority over each other in regards to race or age or wealth or whatever. We are all together in Christ, known according to the Spirit. Verse 18, Paul says, all this is from God. Paul is defining for us a theology of how this new creature comes about. He's saying that all of it is from God. There is great peace here. The the fact that it's not based on your ability to make yourself new. God is the one who does it. In the words of Luther, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. He continues in verse 18. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Paul is referring to himself and to others, to other believers, and he's declaring that he has been reconciled. But reconciled from what? As we know, we are recipients of the wrath of God apart from Christ. And so we stand separated from God, alienated from God, and justly condemned for our sin, deserving of eternal death. 
but God has provided the solution of Jesus Christ, the reconciliation brought about by Christ. But how does this reconciliation come about? Romans 5, 9. For we now have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of his son. This reconciliation brought about by the death of Christ is is brought about by his death. And it's only by his death that I, that you, can be reconciled. And this reconciliation comes about fully by God. God is the reconciler. And Paul continues in verse 18. He says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, this text can be confusing in its pronoun usage. Paul, uh, some commentators argue whether or not Paul is talking about believers as a whole or talking about simply himself and the apostles' ministry of reconciliation. And now, this would be important if reconciliation was Paul's job or the apostles' job, but it's not. It's God's. And so we're proclaiming God has made peace with the world. And this proclamation was no doubt originally bestowed in a powerful way upon the apostles, but now with the Great Commission, it has also been bestowed upon all believers. And so what Paul is saying is that his reconciliation has brought about an altered mission. While formerly he was persecuting the church, now because of his reconciliation through Christ, he has received a new mission from God. And you and I, following Jesus and his entrusting his, gospels to, his gospel to his apostles, we've now been entrusted this same message, that God has reconciled the world to himself. So Paul continues in verse 19 to describe this reconciliation. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Here, God is the aggrieved party. We are the ones who've affronted the character of God. And yet God is also found as the mediator. He's the one who counts not our trespasses against us. And how does he do that? He does it in Christ. In Christ, God was reconciling. Your trespasses are not held against you because they were held against Christ. The most deserving of punishment had averted it, and God himself has taken it. And so what does this beautiful gospel of reconciliation lead to? Two, it leads to the proclamation of the very thing that you and I have experienced. It leads to the proclamation of the message of reconciliation. Paul says that God, by his grace, entrusted the message of reconciliation first to the apostles. He's talking about himself. And this message that was given, we now have. We now have the answer of how to be reconciled to God. And it's not our own, it's God's mission. In Christ, God was reconciling. The mission of proclaiming reconciliation is primarily a mission of God, by God, that we have the privilege of coming alongside. Paul then says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for 
Christ. Because God has reconciled the world to himself, Paul is saying now, I am an ambassador for Christ. So what's an ambassador? Ambassador is a a messenger and a representative. He's the one who proclaims not his own message, but the message that comes from the sovereign. His opinions are not his own. His desires are not his own. Just consider this past Wednesday on July 5th when the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, stood before the United Nations Security Council. She was addressing issues regarding North Korea and their testing of an intercontinental ballistic missile. And in response to this, she said the following. She said, quote, the U.S. is prepared to use the full range of our capabilities to defend ourselves and our allies, adding that this very well could include the use of military action. And so why should the world believe this? Why should North Korea believe this? Why should the world? She has no authority. But you see, her authority is not rooted in her own message, but the message that she's proclaiming from the United States government. And so it's the same way with Paul. Paul's not proclaiming, however, a threat of annihilation. He's offering an offer of hope. And this hope is trustworthy because God initiated it. And we can be confident, not because we're confident in Paul or in ourselves, but because we're confident in God. And God worked through the Apostle Paul. And so Paul continues in verse 20. God is making his appeal through us. This again is an appeal to Paul's position as an ambassador of God. God's appeal is being made through his assigned ambassador. Paul is working for God. And while this passage is defending Paul's apostleship, and we can't necessarily apply the claim of ambassador to all believers from this text, we can say that we have been imparted the words of Christ and his apostles so that we can be confident in what we say, in what we proclaim to the world. Because what we say is not our own, it's God's. And so verse 20 He continues, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We too can plead with others on behalf of the Father, fall before Christ. And if you notice, this is a passive verb here. Be reconciled. Be reconciled by God. Let God bring you back. Receive this free gift of reconciliation. And so let's make this message known, that that God has reconciled the world to himself. Verse 21. I love this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps this afternoon you will take this simple verse And meditate on it. Meditate on on how God has, has made Christ sin. That he has achieved reconciliation through the death of his son. That he took on our sin that made us deserving of death. He died in our stead. And not only did he die in our place, 
but he gave us the reconciliation that was his. That's what we read. Pastor Stephen, Isaiah 53, 11, the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. What a gift. Martin Luther would teach, he would say, by faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated, but remains attached to him forever and declares, I am as Christ. And Christ in turn says, I am as that sinner who is attached to me and I to him. For by faith are we joined together into one flesh and one bone. How beautiful that I can say, I am as Christ. I have Christ's righteousness. How profound, how beautiful, how beautiful a hope. And this is the message we're proclaiming, a message of true hope that man is reconciled to God through Christ. That Christ became our sin and we became Christ's righteousness. So we'll finish in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. This is, this is a warning. But what, what is Paul talking about? He's not talking about losing your salvation. That is contrary to the, entire, to the entirety of Scripture. But rather, he's talking about the grace of God that some of you, that hopefully all of you are experiencing right now. And that's the preaching of the word of God. That you are being taught the gospel of Christ. That I am proclaiming to you, be reconciled to God. And the sad thing is that some of you will hear that this morning and you will do nothing with it. You will have received the grace of God in vain. Oh, what sorrow will there be for you that you out of all people are hearing the gospel this morning and you choose not to bow to Christ, but you stiff arm him and his spirit. And so with Paul, I appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Verse two, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is calling out to Corinth. He's saying, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation for you. If you have never bowed your knee to Christ, I tell you this morning that reconciliation to God is brought about by Christ, and you receive this through faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And I call you, repent, turn from your sin, and believe in what Christ has done, and you will be saved. But it's also a day of salvation for your neighbor, church, for the nations. Live like it. It's, it's not simply the job of of myself or Pastor Stephen or Pastor Josh to proclaim the gospel on Sunday morning, to build the church. It's your job to, to preach it day in and day 
out. Bring in the downtrodden. Bring in the poor. Bring in the worthless. That's who we were. And so let's make that desperate appeal with Paul. Knowing that Jesus will one day judge the living and the dead. Let's proclaim this beautiful message. This message that has changed us. That has made us into new creatures. I hope the world can see that. That has saved us. That has reconciled us to a holy, holy Holy God. Father, we thank you for this beautiful message that we have been reconciled to you by Jesus Christ. And thank you that it's by your servant Jesus that we have been accounted righteous. Let us live there. Let us give the world the right opinion of you that many might receive this message. And don't let us receive the grace of God in vain, both for the lost here and for the saved. Don't let us leave this place this afternoon having heard and yet doing nothing with it. What, what if you so impress this on our hearts that the northern Virginia would never be the same? Father, would you do that in my heart? Would you do that in the hearts of your people, the people whom you love? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.